If you turn in your Bibles now to the book of 2 Corinthians, we return to this book and uh, we have been studying through this book and have been covering it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this particular section from chapters 10 through 13 marks a change in the tone of Paul as he begins in the defense of his ministry as he approaches ministering to people who are causing problems within the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We will be reading from verses 1 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 11. Paul writes here, Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent, I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience Whenever your obedience is complete, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is in Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so are we. For even if I boast somewhat further about our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be put to shame. For I do not wish to seem as if I would terrify you by my letters. For they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. God of heaven, once again, we come before your word. And we pray, Father, that you would instill within us a reverence for it. Because it is you who speaks. We pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart. That we might see great and wonderful things from thy law. In Jesus' most precious name, amen. In life, there will always be difficult people, whether it is your neighbor, your coworker, your family members, your relatives or someone at the store. There will always be difficult people, difficult, demanding, high maintenance, high strung people with high expectations, making life difficult for others. 
And rather being, than being uplifting, rather than being encouraging, rather than being positive, what they say and do carries an attitude that seems to bring everybody else down. For there's a cloud over their head and they bring that to rain on you when you meet them. In the book entitled Well-Intentioned Dragons, it identifies and it discusses how to deal with people in the church who are difficult. And it categorizes various people who come into the church and are very problematic. There's one that they call the bird dog. The bird dog is the dog that goes with the hunter, you know, and wherever the hunter shoots, the bird dog goes out to get it. And they tend to be, as the author writes, the pastor's eyes, ears, nose, and sniffing out items for attention. Quote, if I were you, I'd give Miss Greenlee a call. She has some marital problems you need to confront. Or we need more activities for the youth. Or the spiritual bird dog, the Lord has laid on my heart that we need to be praying more for renewal. Who could, who could argue against that? Genuine bird dogs will say, well, when pointed out that maybe the Lord should have them talk to that person. Well, that's your job, Pastor. I'm just calling your attention to something important. Or the wet blanket type of person who basically says, well, it's no use trying. And their motto is, nothing ventured, nothing lost. The entrepreneur in the church sees people who come in as a business opportunity. Whether they're selling beeswax or car wax, they found a new client for themselves. Then there is the person who blusters out whatever it is. They speak with exclamation points instead of a period. And during a public meeting, they'll stand up and say, I don't like what you said. All of our salaries are out of line. Pastors are paid too much these days. Or there are those who will say and speak as a fickle financier who vote with their wallet. And they'll silently withhold when they disagree, they'll give when they agree, or whatnot. Then there are those who are the busybodies who enjoy telling others how to do their job, or the sniper who says, be sure you pray for our pastor, he has some problems, you know. Or the bookkeeper who writes down all the little things that are done that are not Christ-like. Or the one who is dissatisfied by attracting others to telling them what's wrong. Or the legalist. And all of these can be found in any congregation, and they can be difficult people in the church. Because why? We're all sinners. And that includes the leadership as well. We all come with problems. We all come with baggage. We all come from a background in which people dealt with particular problems in a particular way. And problems arise, even well-intentioned sometimes. But there are others who are enemies within the church. And they cause dissension. They cause problems. And what happens here in this particular passage from chapters 10 to 13 is that Paul begins in the defense of his ministry to deal with people that were difficult in the church. And it's instructive for us because it helps us to understand how and in what way can we practically deal with difficult people who come into our lives as well. Paul was no stranger to problems. Paul was no stranger to difficult people. And in this particular context, there were some extremely difficult people within the church. And here in the last four chapters of the book of 2 Corinthians, he turns his attention to addressing these people who are still perhaps causing 
problems, accusations that have been levied against him. And it's important to note, you see, because when we have been going through the book of 2 Corinthians, the first nine chapters, it was somewhat affirming, wasn't it? It was somewhat uh, uh, complimentary to them when he was encouraging them. And he was encouraged himself because a number of the Corinthians had turned, had turned back to God. You see, when Paul left the church, there were some false teachers who had infiltrated the church. They had credentials. They could speak well. They touted themselves and began to derail Paul's leadership, began to undermine his ministry. And they turned a large portion of the church. And so Paul wrote to them a letter, a very severe letter, a scathing letter, a letter of rebuke. And he didn't know how they were going to respond to that letter. And by the grace of God, the church turned away from these false teachers back to Paul. And Paul affirms their repentance in the first nine chapters. He affirms their growth. And then in chapters 8 and 9, which we had just covered, he reminds them, don't forget to fulfill the promise that you made to the Jews in Jerusalem in your pledge to give to the poor, because it would be such a testimony for you as a church. But now in chapter 10, there's a turning, a pivot point in the entire book, so stark that some people have said, well, maybe this was written some other time later. Maybe there was some news that had come in. What Paul does here is that he writes one continuous letter here, but he addresses the detractors who were still within the church because not all of the church had turned back to Paul. Not all of them had done so. There were still some who had levied accusations undermining the ministry of Paul. And there were still some problematic troublemakers. And in the defense of his ministry, in the defense of his integrity, to defend himself against those who were assaulting him, he begins to write here in these first 11 verses as he confronts them with a meek attitude. His battle is a spiritual battle. And thirdly, he attests to the fact that he lives what he writes The first thing he does in dealing with difficult people here is that he confronts them with a meekness and a gentleness, but with bold courage, if need be. Now I, Paul, verse 1, urge you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. One of the things Paul was accused of was being timid, was being a coward. The Bible tells us Paul wasn't afraid. He wasn't a person who was unfamiliar with mobs, with riots, with shipwrecks. He was courageous as he stood before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He was courageous as he stood before the Roman governors. He even called and appealed to Caesar. King Herod, he spoke before. So when confronting the Corinthians, the manner in which he confronts them is telling and important for us to note. By the meekness, the scriptures say, and the gentleness of Christ. He picks up the accusation, by the way, in that next phrase. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold towards you when absent. That was the accusation that was levied against him. And so he picks up and identifies tongue in cheek himself in that way. It's like saying, me, whom you think is just courageous when writing, but meek when I come to you. I'm the one who's writing. But he came to them and appeals to them 
with a meek and gentle attitude. In fact, the word meekness is often translated to be a gentle person. Translated as a, as a gentle person, an attitude of somebody when they are offended to be gentle. It means power that is under control. It is a gentleness, a kindness, because there is a patience and a gentle response to the smear campaign that was going on against Paul in Corinth. He had no means of immediately defending himself, and yet when he chooses to respond, he confronts them with a gentle and kind attitude. The kind of attitude that Christ had when he was afflicted. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed, speaking of Christ, and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So... He did not open his mouth. How do you respond? Someone insults you. Someone derides you. Somebody verbally attacks you when there's a hurt or an offense. What do you do? Do you go behind their back and slander them back? Do you pounce on them? Do you use the position that you might have over them to quote unquote put them in their place? Or do you appeal to them with an attitude that is meek and gentle that they might turn? One of the things you see we all have difficulty with, at least most people, is confrontation. None of us like confrontation. Most people avoid it, I should say, like the plague. And sometimes avoidance is the proper thing to do with certain types of people. As it says in 2 Timothy 3, 2-5, Paul writes to the young pastor who is at... Ephesus, named Timothy, he says in verse 2, For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, then he says, avoid such men as these. They're commanded. We're commanded to avoid certain people. People who are conceited. People who are arrogant. People who are gossiping. People who are ungrateful. We're commanded not to hang around these types of people. Avoid these types of people, Paul instructs Timothy. There are people that we do avoid. But there are those within the body of Christ that threaten to cause dissension, people who are false teachers and mislead people, and for the sake of others and for the love of God, there's sometimes the need to confront. And when Paul appeals to the church and to these individuals, he comes across in a manner that is gentle and meek. I don't like to confront. I personally don't like to confront. I like things to be easy. I like the path of least resistance to avoid potentially explosive situations and people, though, need to speak up earlier. And that's something I've had to learn because oftentimes people speak up when they're fed up. They've had it up to here with whatever it might be with so-and-so and and -and so-and-so's attitude or whatever it might be. And when it comes out, they lash out and bam, it all comes out. It's all gunny sacked out 
Like the husband who says, well, when my wife gets mad, she doesn't get hysterical, she gets historical. (laughs) All of the stuff comes out from the past and you're wondering, where did this come from? I remember when I was at working for Continental Savings Bank, it's Home Street Bank now, and I work downtown. And I remember I had done some IT work and I had done some upgrades for the president and the CEO of the bank. I mean, this was the man in charge of everything. And I I gave him the latest and greatest computer and upgrades and took all of his data, etc. It wasn't working quite perfectly. I had to go back a little bit. But I can remember the day when he called me into his office because... I thought to myself, I know his address book is like messed up. And I went in there and, you know, I was just a little guy, you know, a little guy on the bottom rung that answered the phone when things were wrong. And he sat me down and he gently and kindly told me that he himself shouldn't have received brand new hardware because he wasn't a priority. He didn't need it, and the money would be best gone to those who really needed it underneath him. And I thought to myself, what a wonderful approach, as I was sweating, thinking that maybe I would be fired. So he kept it. But that's the kind of attitude that is power under control. When things don't go the way you ought to, you approach people who are are perhaps have been unsatisfying in a way that is gentle and meek. What kind of attitude do we have when someone personally offends us? What kind of attitude do we have? It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt or that means that we don't feel terrible, but what if it's unprovoked or unjustified, unfair or critical? How do we respond? Paul appealed to them with meekness and gentleness. And if that didn't go over well, he said, I would be willing to come and be bold. There are times that we need to confront and avoidance is not always the way to go. We give people the benefit of the doubt. We write or speak to them in a winsome way when we confront and gentleness and respect for who they are are all helpful. Secondly, we deal with difficult people by gently confronting them, but also our battle is with spiritual truth. Spiritual truth. Verse 3. We walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. Verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not to the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. See, Paul's enemies there in the church were accusing him of walking in the flesh. Accusing him of saying that Paul, he is worldly. He's, he was not a man of stature to be followed. What did Paul do? He didn't go and play church politics. He didn't go around and try and convince all of the parishioners of his, perhaps, you know, credentials. He didn't try to manipulate, bribe or complain. He wrote to the church and he explained in a forthright way using spiritual truth. And that's the perspective that a Christian has, that our warfare is that which is a spiritual warfare that we battle. 
And it changes the whole perspective when we look at the church like that. Not as an institution, not as a social club, or not as a non-profit organization. Because if you begin to look at it like a corporation, then what? It will become the bottom line issue. What is the, the power? Who has the power? Who has the money? Who makes all the decisions? Who has the bottom line in all of this? That is the business worldly view of the church. When we look at the church as the body of Christ that we thwart with spiritual means and we pray and we fight with the truth of the word of God. And Paul's response to his detractors is, look, we live in the flesh, but we don't battle the way the world battles. What does it look like? Verse five. We're destroying speculations, every lofty thing lodged up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He was going to battle these false teachers in what they were, what they were communicating to the church, how they were trying to deceive the church. There's a good chance there were Judaizers there who wanted to sway people back into the old Judaistic ways of legalism. In their faith, or others who were factions because it became political at times. But they weren't going to be, they weren't going to be derided by worldly means. It was going to be by the thoughts of God, by the knowledge of God. See, Satan's main weapon against you and me is not to scare you. Not just scare you by a picture of some devil with a pitchfork and a tail. It is to deceive you with false ideas, false philosophies, and let a person's heart be deceived and lead their soul away from God. One commentator writes, a spiritual war, however, cannot be successfully fought with fleshly weapons. Therefore, the weapons in Paul's arsenal were not those of human ingenuity, human ideology, or human methodology, human reason, wisdom, plans, strategy, organization, skill, eloquence, marketing, religious showmanship, philosophical or psychological speculation, ritualism, pragmatism, or mysticism are all ineffective weapons against the forces of the kingdom of darkness. They cannot rescue sinners from the domain of darkness or transform believers into Christ's likeness. Such weapons will gain only superficial, temporary, and deceptive victories at best. So we can't, for example, please God by offering people a a new bike or a new car for bringing somebody to church. Or he cannot please God by manipulating people by coffee that is highly caffeinated so they'll stay up during the sermon. Or you can't convert the heart through emotional swaying music that goes on. Worldly methods and worldly means are not the weapon of spiritual warfare. Because the warfare we face is a battle for the mind, the battle over truth. Mike Riddle, in his latest newsletter, comments about, makes a quote, number of quotations. One by Ben Shapiro in his book, Brainwashed, How Universities Indoctrinate America's Youth. And he writes, college students are attacked with bias from the moment they step on campus until the time they leave it. The burgeoning problem of brainwashing by the universities must be combated. 
Consider these statements by university professors. One from Princeton University, quote, If we don't play God, who will? There seems to be three possibilities. There is a God, but he doesn't care about evil and suffering. There is a God who cares, but he or she is a bit of an underachiever. Or there is no God. Personally, I believe the latter, unquote. Or a professor at Hunter College. I don't believe in God. He hurts too much, unquote. Or a professor at Wellesley College. Religion is something we can perhaps do without. Or a UCLA prof who says Christianity is a harmful policy. Or a professor at Biola University. The idea is you need to reinvent the church to be adaptable to contemporary culture. Professor at University of Texas who says we have to have a new generation of younger women supporting abortion rights. We can't win without them. He goes on to write the brainwashing of students by the university system is one of the most severe problems plaguing America's youth. College students are often blinded to the motives of their professors. Students also lack the tools, skill and knowledge to challenge their professors. Acceptance ends up being the easiest road and the road most often taken, unquote. You see, that spiritual battle is for what is true, what is objectively true in the battle for the mind, the battle for what the heart understands. It's a battle that we learned a couple of weeks ago that if the heart cannot ultimately, the heart cannot exalt in what the mind begins to doubt. And that is why passion fades, because in college where doubt is introduced, the mind has no answer. The passion of the heart declines. And our battle is a spiritual battle against ideologies, against the philosophies, against the things that the world would propagate as true. And that is why it is so important to take the time to make the effort to understand Not just the scriptures, but what the scriptures speak to today's world. And how the world thinks so that we might be able, as it says, the destruction of fortresses. Now, fortresses back then in biblical times, many large cities had fortresses. It it communicated the idea of a citadel. One in which, uh, you know, when you're attacked... The city is attacked. People run to this fortified citadel and they lock themselves up, barricade themselves in. Most major cities had this type of thing. And the idea is that the non-Christian has a belief system that is strongly fortified, that has barricaded themselves and blinded themselves from God. And the weapons for us to use to break down these fortifications is the truth of the word of God. It is the truth of God that we speak to people who ask us, why do we believe what we believe? Why do we think the way that we think or to engage them? In a way that gives them an answer for the hope we have within us. And that answer comes not from some philosophical argument, but from the scriptures. Because the word of God is powerful and active and will pierce their heart with the truth. As the spirit of God uses that in their life. Because they fortified and barricaded themselves in with whatever belief system they have. 
And you know what? Satan doesn't really care. Satan really doesn't care if you're a Mormon, if you're an atheist, if you're a Buddhist, or if you're whatever, a naturalist. He doesn't care because all of those roads lead to the same place and it is all away from God. It doesn't matter to him as long as it is not the truth. And we take every thought captive as we listen. We take every thought captive as we continue to learn what is true. What is true? And we hold fast to that. And Paul comes to these false teachers to correct them. He was no coward. He was saying in verse 6, even ready to punish all disobedience. Whenever your obedience is complete, those false teachers, if they didn't turn, those people who were causing difficulties, causing trouble within the church, Paul would boldly discipline them. So let me encourage you to continue to strive to learn, to think deeply, to think theologically, to seek to understand doctrine, and not just to gloss over the Bible. Well, I've done my five minutes a day. We take every thought captive and like a good Berean in the book of Acts to see what does the scripture say, to dig our roots deep in the word of God so we can understand Thirdly, not only did Paul deal with difficult people with gentle confrontation, with spiritual truth, but he sought to live a consistent testimony. A consistent testimony. Verse 7. If anyone confident he is himself, let him consider this again. Just as he is Christ, so are we. So are we. What is he saying? They were saying, well, we're of the faction of Christ. Remember early on in the book of Corinthians, the first Corinthians, some would say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I am of Christ. These people claimed perhaps to have an inroad, to have an inroad, to have a sidestep to know what God is saying. Some people do that today. They claim to know God told me this or whatever it may be. Paul's own life, his own testimony, was under attack. They accused him of being worldly. They accused him of not having the credentials. Remember that? Not having the credentials that they had. Were, were the letter was a recommendation of Paul's. Now Paul answered another charge. For even I boast somewhat about our authority, building you up, not destroying you. I will not be put to shame, for I do not wish to seem if I would terrify you by my letters. In other words, remember they were writing and saying Paul is, is forceful. He's bold when he writes. Paul said, look, I am not trying to terrify you by my letters. The implied claim is Paul is some sort of bully. He's some sort of domineering, dictatorial tyrant eliciting fear. He wants to make you afraid of him. Don't listen. Talk about character assassination. What did they say? His letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. I mean, if it wasn't enough to impugn his motives, to corrupt his character, what are they saying? They're saying two things. Paul is ugly. It's number two, he's boring. He's ugly and he's boring. Now, if somebody's ugly and they're interesting, you know, you'll go and listen to them. 
right? There's lots of ugly people that you listen to because they're interesting. In fact, maybe if they're really ugly, I suppose might even provide more interest. But they would be people that you would listen to. And if you're beautiful, maybe you're boring. People will still listen to you. I think of all the people in Hollywood that have all these Twitter accounts, you know, 140 words. And I think to myself, how shallow some of the tweets they have. Not that I follow them. I mean, I'll tell you, I read them on the news. I mean, they've got thousands of followers who want to listen to what so-and-so, who is a beautiful, popular movie star, has to say. I have a Twitter account. I have eight followers. (laughs) Paul. Paul, their accusation was that he was ugly and boring. Now that's a punch in the gut. You've got a real obstacle to overcome. You've got a real obstacle to overcome if that's truly what it is. I mean, that's getting personal. It would be like somebody here saying, oh, pastor, you know why I fall asleep at church? Because it just pains my eyes to look at you, let alone listen to you. That's terrible. But that's what they said about Paul. Looking that there, he's not a charismatic speaker. He's not an eloquent speaker. Paul's not your man. He's not a strong leader with a vision. Put him in some pastoral search and he's not going to even make the cut. <laughs> a second century document called the Acts of Paula and Theodia says this, quote, Paul was a man small of stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and a nose somewhat hooked, unquote. Now, I don't know who wrote that. I don't know if it's true or not. Ancient documents sometimes, maybe they were slanderous or whatnot, but we know Paul likely wasn't some tall, dark, imposing figure. In our country, the political analysts, especially during the presidential raid, have this index called the likability index, you know? People vote by the likability index. How much... Do you like this person? How relatable is he? And their accusation was Paul is unrelatable. You can't relate. You don't like him because he's like this. He writes in a way that is bold. But when you see him, he's unimpressive. Who is that? He wasn't some domineering person. Now, that was the type of leader that they were used to in biblical times. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20, 25. He said, you know that the leaders of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great men exercise authority over them. That's what they did. They were dominating. They were powerful, perhaps figures that were strong and lorded or dictating however things would come. Not Paul. Meekness and gentleness of Christ. And so fascinating, isn't it? That how we as people are often judged based upon the world's standard. We can be that way. What speaks loud and clear, though, as Paul proposed here, is I live what I write. I'm a faithful testimony. And when you live a consistent life that pursues God, then your testimony speaks volumes to other people. That's what Paul did. Verse 11. Consider what I say. Those are in word and letters are absent. Except persons, we are also indeed when present. Whatever he wrote... That is who he was. He was transparent in his writing. He walked a consistent testimony. So don't allow 
the criticism of people to hold you back. Don't allow what others may say or even what you think they may say get you down and beat you down. Care more about what God says and the outward than the outward evaluation of other people. It's never easy to take the criticism. It's far easier to shovel it out. That's how it always has been. But let me encourage you not to give in. Even when the criticism is stinging or you receive something that is not a positive message. Maybe even some of you have had criticism severely when you were a child or something like that. Something that was so discouraging that has held you back for all of these years. Don't let it override what the Word of God says about you. That you can do great things for God. That God uses ordinary people for extraordinary things. Don't allow the stinging criticism to deride your confidence, not in yourself, but in God. Because by the grace of God, we can do great things for God. Look at Paul. He wasn't an outwardly impressive person. He wasn't a person who was the most skilled or gifted, but he was accused many times. But God used him. God used him. You're, you're probably not the most gifted person here. I'm not, and none of us are. There's always somebody better, but praise God, because then when God does something with us, it's not because of us, it is because of God. Then we can't say, oh, because we were so smart or because we did such a nice job on this or because we, whatever it may be, all glory goes to God. I think of a story that Johnny Erickson Tata wrote about a friend of hers. And Johnny Erickson Tata, as you know, is the head of Johnny and Friends, a ministry of disabled folks. She writes about her friend who had cerebral palsy. She says, quote, How do you trust the Lord when, as one person said, Mary Jane looks like one of those shriveled apple dolls? How do you trust when kids your own age shun you or worse yet are afraid to come near you? How do you trust the Lord when you are rejected by mission boards and then the doors finally open to Africa? The Africans take one look at your wild white hair and twist a smile and label you a witch. At the age of 71, Mary Jane Ponton faced this and much more. Maybe this is why I like to call her the treasures of the truth of 1 Samuel 16:7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his, the appearance of his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. When Mary Jane was born to Susan and Leo Dugan back in the summer of 1930, she weighed just four pounds and four ounces. The doctor said, name her quickly. She won't live. and You'll need to put a name on the death certificate. So they named her something with no family significance, Mary Jane. Ten days later, the little baby was still alive and the doctor shrugged and told her, well, enjoy her for a little while while you take her home because she won't live long. At the age of three, the doctors told her parents, well, it looks like she'll live after all, but she'll never walk, talk, or think. The kindest thing you can do is put this child away in an institution and forget about her. Susan and Leo didn't take that advice. They began to train this little girl 
They began to train her and teach her all sorts of things like how to jump rope and roller skate and ice skate and ride a bike. And as she was growing up, church had always been a part of her activities. So it was natural for Mary Jane, natural for her to respond early to a call to missionary service. From the time I was 12 years old, she said, I knew I was going to be a missionary to China. I've been called. I said yes. And as far as I was concerned, there was no further discussion. In the year 2000, she went to China on a short-term missionary, as a short-term missionary, not in spite of her disability, but because of it. And that's not all. She has been overseas with wheels for the world. Wheelchairs. So many times that last year, extra pages had to be added to her passport. Mary Jane's job with us is to train pastors and church leaders to reach out to disabled people in their communities, to accept them with dignity and to effectively share God's love with them. She also trains them in evangelism techniques and instructs them in training their church members to accept these, quote, outcasts of society. She certainly is not immune to them even now, even after 71 years Not long ago, she was at the gas station filling her tank when two teenage girls came up behind her. As she removed the nozzle, one said in a voice that she couldn't possibly miss, quote, people like that shouldn't be let out on the street. What shocked Mary Jane wasn't what the girls said. It was the anger that stirred up within her. Now, even now, it is not easy sailing for Mary Jane and never will be. Not even among God's people where love and acceptance are to be the strongest. I've walked into churches where people look at me and treat me like an idiot. Then they find out I'm the speaker and suddenly everyone is quiet. Uh Uh-oh. When Mary Jane looks honestly at herself, she is well aware that she herself is weak. She recognizes it and accepts it. It's a fact of life. And rejecting or ignoring it will not make it go away. In her strength, she knows she would be a bitter old lady. But oh, what she is doing through Christ's strength. Unquote. Isn't that amazing? God can take somebody to impact thousands around the world. God can take somebody with a disability. God can take whatever you have to offer and turn it into a beautiful flower for His glory. God can take whatever you have to offer, whether you think so or not, and use it. The question is whether or not you will give yourself to God and serve God with what you have. What you have. How do we minister to problematic people? The willingness to confront with a meekness and a gentleness that reflects Christ with courage and boldness. The realization that we battle for the minds and the hearts of people. So even when we confront, it's not to put them where they ought to be. It is to win them to Christ. To turn their hearts with the truth that they might have salvation and walk in God's way. And as we do, we live a consistent testimony before those who will disagree. So what they say about what you think separated from what they say about how you and I live. Because you and I, what we have to give to God is our lives. And God can use our lives to do great things for His glory. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks. Father, for we are... 
people who all have faults. And Lord, we give you thanks for this family, for even as a family, as a church together, we have faults. And yet, God, by your grace, we pray that we might focus on those things that will build one another up. Oh, Father, and may we have the courage to speak the truth in love that we all might be built up for your glory and your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.